Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. Well, I am very excited about our agenda today. I met and spoke with the artist Shireen Nishat. I love her work. I think the first work of hers I saw was, I was, I was definitely very young and it was uh, the Women of Allah photographic series. And I think that it wasn't probably until right after 9-11 when her, a lot of her work came back into resurgence that that photo series really came back to me again. I'm very curious to see this exhibit in LA now because I, I, I know that it's a retrospective and I hope that that is part of that. Hello. I like how you sounded surprised that I'm here. Like, hi, what are you doing at my door? (laughs) Are you here? Are you here? (laughs) Like when you call each other at the same time and it just magically connects. Has that ever happened to you? Right, right. I love that. Um, Old school feeling. Well, I am very excited about our agenda today. Um, Tell me. I met and spoke with the artist Shireen Nishat. I have been a real fan of her work, like, you know, not as long as she's been working. It's not like I, you know, got to know her in high school. I was a little bit older. But I have a very visceral memory of the first time I saw a particular piece of her video art, which is like, I will I will kind of like do the a brief description. I was a friend showed me on YouTube. So I did not have like a gallery experience, but it's called Turbulent. It is, in fact, her first video work after she'd been making mostly portraits, like photographic work for several years at that point. And in this video, it's kind of a split screen. On one side, you have a man who is singing and uh, his voice is beautiful. And behind him, you can see an audience, an almost full audience of other men who are listening to him perform and hanging on his every note. And then on the other side of the split screen, while he is singing, you just kind of see a, a, a shadowy, like a figure, like the kind of the outline of a human. Um, and then the man concludes his uh, song and the lights kind of come up on the other side and you see that it is a woman and, um, and she begins to sing. And the, the tenor of her song is, is much different. You know, it's, um, it sounds you know, more wild. There's kind of like an edge of desperation, but it's like really powerful and really beautiful. And notably behind her, all the seats are empty. So she is singing to an empty room. Um, And some combination of all of these elements, I just, I, I found so profound. And I really, it's something that like I have returned to and shared with a lot of other friends. I mean, I'm not alone in finding this work really, really meaningful. But anyway, she is known for video art like this that primarily deals with um, topics like women's lives in Iran. Shirin was born in Iran in the late 50s and has lived in the United States since the late 1970s. She also makes a lot of work that deals with topics like exile and isolation and political revolution. She now mostly makes work outside of Iran. I mean, it has for most of her career, but she um, has portrait series that are um, featuring a bunch of folks involved in uh, Egyptian like pro-democracy movements and um, activists in Azerbaijan. She also has some incredible video art pieces set in Morocco. Um, 
you know, she's she is everywhere. <laughs> and she really has this way of making art that feels so thoroughly political, but is not like, hello, it is I, a piece of political art, like bonking you over the head with this idea. And so she really walks this line so beautifully. Sorry for rambling forever, but like, so do, do you, are you a fan of her work too? Yeah, I mean, I love her work. The first work of hers I saw was, I was definitely very young and it was uh, the Women of Allah photographic series that she made that is really just about, it's funny because at the time I'm like, it was about the changing cultural landscape in the Middle East, which is still changing. But I remember just being very, very struck by this photo series because so it's basically photos of, uh, of Muslim women that are overlaid with calligraphy. And it looks very sparse and like measured and symmetrical there. It's mostly like photos of women in chadors. And then there is this calligraphy that's, that is overlaid over it. And a lot of the, a lot of it, I think like challenged me at the time to really think about the gaze of Muslim women. And it's something that I just remember being, I remember being very shook by like as a young person and not really being like, okay, this is part of my identity, but also something very modern and violent is happening here in a way that I don't know. I don't quite know how to think about. And I think that it wasn't probably until right after nine 11 when her, a lot of her work came back into resurgence that that photo series really came back to me again I think it's definitely one of her earlier works because it's from the 90s and it's one that, you know, whenever people talk about like the the cool new like sexy stuff that she's into, I always think of that and I um I am very curious to see this exhibit in LA now because I I I know that it's a retrospective and I hope that that is part of that. Well, I can tell you it definitely is and Yes. Yes, and um and the the scale of the photos is absolutely breathtaking. So if you are in LA, highly recommend checking it out. And uh, the rest of us can listen to my conversation with Shireen, which we did in person at the Broad. First, we just want to thank you so much for taking time to be on the show. Thank you for having me. I want to start maybe a little selfishly by asking you about your piece, Turbulent, which was my introduction to your work. Um, and the very first time I saw it and every time since, including about three minutes ago, I have really been very, very deeply moved. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the genesis of that work. First of all, uh, Turbulent, which was made in 1998, is um, my first video, my first entry into the moving picture. Um, and I uh, had been doing a lot of still photography and I felt a certain exhaustion from you know that kind of work. So I made the bold decision to, to try something new. Um, but the thematically, um, I was really fascinated by how women in Iran are forbidden to publicly sing um, and that uh, men are allowed. And I, I found um, would be interesting to make a work that sort of critiques um, the kind of music that you can predict from someone who has the freedom, the musical freedom, versus the person who doesn't, you know. And um, because I've been very interested in the issue of feminism and how uh, the issue of the woman in not just all Islamic cultures, but in the Iranian society. Um, and I'm also very much interested in how women regardless of all the oppression, tend to find a way to be very rebellious and defiant. So at the end, we end up making 
a work that on thematically it showed a man first singing this very beautiful traditional song um, very classical and people loved it and I, it is a beautiful song by poetry by Rumi and the woman quietly listened but then when it came to her turn which she had no audience her music broke and uh, broke every rule of music the there was no language it was all purely guttural and um but yet it was so powerful and basically put the man in his place <laughs> um so i was very interested in this notion of opposites male and female traditional not traditional conformists the rebellious um and how at the end um, in symbolically sort of represented where the women were in the society versus the men and how the more you are up against the wall the more tendency there is to be protesting mm. um but formally uh, i was very interested in creating a kind of a very environmental sculptural experience where the audience are literally divided between the two narratives and they have to just keep looking on you know and just take sides i want to ask you to talk a little bit more about this idea of what kind of art or what kind of work can come out of feeling so constrained or maybe feeling like the world is actively preventing you from expressing yourself i wonder if you've thought about how which freedoms you feel and don't feel have affected the kind of art you've been able to make well one thing i have to say that um you know i've always given myself a lot of boundaries you know in terms of the work that i make um just subconsciously i don't know if it's because i'm iranian um I don't like infinity. <laughs> I I like <laughs> limitations. Um and and that means for example if you look at my aesthetics, uh they're very minimal. They're often use the idea of repetition. You know, I use the feet, the eye, the face, the hand, you know, I, the body language. Um you know, I never expose like the breast or the stomach, you know. Uh or in my narratives um they're very carefully calculated that they're not um critical directly about anyone or any uh, institution or thought so i feel like first i give myself a boundary in terms of what i would like to do and what i would not do and then within that boundary i want the freedom mm-hmm. you know and i think that's the way i function and and to be very honest there's no doubt that this has to have something with the fact that i'm born iranian and we have had years of censorship dictatorship lack of freedom of expression and we've always have to learn how to be subversive within a very hidden language using up allegory and metaphors and so um so i am really a product of a culture that has sort of the censorship has gone deeply ingrained in their their mindset where they can't just differentiate whether it's the society that is censoring or yourself and i think those boundaries that are given that like, you know the fact that i don't want to insult anyone it's because of where i come from i'm not sure if i'm answering your mm. question um but i really do need always to start with a form of boundary It's interesting hearing you say say something about critiquing specific institutions because I was reading an interview with you recently where you said that the most recent work that's in this exhibition is perhaps the most um overt in dealing with the social and political realities in the United States right now. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and why why that might be the case. Yeah, I mean for the longest time I even though i've lived here now longer than in my own country so i very much feel like iranian american i felt like i i 
wasn't able to even imagine making work that sort of critiques this society. It was always like me standing on exile, looking back in the Middle East, in Iran, you know. Um, and, and then lately, I, I obviously after the Trump administration came into power and, and all of that went wrong, um, I, I really felt like an immigrant, you know. I, for the first time, the, um, this notion of being a foreigner um, and, and the whole configuration of this country as a democratic society being at risk um, affected me really deeply. Um, and I thought, okay, I do feel now that it, it's time for me, I, I've gained a license to make work that somehow um, sort of gives my perspective of what I feel about the state of affairs in this country. And so, but knowing that I'm, I'm a person of poetry and surrealism, magic realism, I came up with a narrative that you know, critiques it as like a form of political satire. Uh, Iranian immigrant woman going to interview people door to door at their homes in New Mexico, asking to take their portrait and then trying to collect their dreams. And then taking those dreams back to a hidden Iranian colony, uh, <laughs> which is on the exhibit at the Broad, um, where the bunch of Iranian people are secretly analyzing American people's dreams at a place that looks like they're creating atomic bombs in uniforms and all of that. They're going through American people's photographs and dreams. I thought that was a perfect way of, of talking about the absurdity of this tension that has been going on for years and years between these two countries and how both administrations on the Iranian side and American side, um, they're using the other as a form of enemy to, to sort of rally support for themselves in a way by the Iranian Islamic Republic of Iran saying the Americans are the enemy, you know, they get more support among the Iranians and the, and the Trump administration saying that we're the axis of evil, <laughs> uh, trying to create this horrible picture of us as trying to destroy the world, the planet, and then they get Americans to hate us. And so, but by them spying on their dreams, as if there's something about the dreams that is going to tell you something about the malice of the nation, I found that very provocative. <laughs> um, and then the last thing I want to say is that this woman who is the spy, at the end, as she interviews Americans, begins to emotionally identify with these people and sees, in fact, that their dreams and nightmares are actually not that different mm -hmm. from hers. So it's really about the humanity in all of us and how one way or another we are all victims and subject to political injustice. Mm. Um, in a different interview, uh, you, you made a comment about how uh, it took a long time for you to take yourself seriously. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your timeline as an artist and, and maybe a little bit about what you meant by that. Yeah, actually, it's an interesting question because I, for some odd reason, I grew up as a child thinking I want to be an artist. And no reason for that because there was no one in my remote family even artistically inclined. But I had this romanticism about art and a lot of people do, I think, even when they go to school. Then I came to the U.S. and I went to UC Berkeley and quickly I've discovered that I'm terrible, terrible artist and I have really absolutely nothing to say. And in fact, at the school, I, I really was at the bottom of the, the list of the students. I, in fact, you know, also that during that time was the revolution in Iran and the war with Iraq and all of the, and, you know, antagonism between U.S. and Iran. So I couldn't even focus. 
So I lost interest in art, and when I graduated, which was about 1982, 83, I didn't touch art for 11, 11 years. Um, and then when I went back to it was after I visited Iran, and I felt very compelled with certain issues. But also during this time that I had taken absent from, from art, I had um, been able to develop some kind of a maturity and a sort of visual vocabulary. And so everything came together when I felt mature and I found the subject that I was passionate about. And then from that point on, there was no way of stopping it. And things had their own evolution. And and what about those 10 years in between before you felt those things click into place? Well, I, I tried to survive uh, because at this point my financial support was cut by family. Uh, and then I met my ex-husband who had founded this wonderful not-for-profit organization called the Storefront for Art and Architecture. And I became like the co-director and for the next 10 years I worked there um, helping other artists uh, vision come through uh, making exhibitions books and conferences and actually it was the greatest exercise in in just sort of being selfless and not having an ambition of any kind and just trying to support others mm. uh, and then eventually I left. So last year, Gina and I saw you speak after a screening of your feature film, Looking for Um Kultum, and uh, I recall the story that you told about how you lost, I believe, the lead actor on the film maybe the day before it was supposed to begin shooting. It occurs to me that you must have faced several big obstacles like this, particularly when pursuing some of your most ambitious, largest scale works. And I'm wondering if um, another time comes to mind when you thought that a project you'd really spent a lot of time and effort on could possibly fall apart. Exactly the same thing happened when I was making Women Without Men. Uh, And part of the problem is that I was being mm, not so smart um, recruiting actors who live in Iran. Mm -hmm. And knowing that problematics of my political reputation in Iran and um, and that you know at this point um, the government doesn't like to see any of them to come and work with me and that could cause them a problem in their future return to Iran or future work in cinema but all of them at the beginning told me they're not worried and so actually I had another actress a lead actress for the previous film Exactly the same thing happened. We, in fact, we had all her dresses made. And um, so I was really stupid because this, I became a victim of artists who, who fantasized about working with me. And then at the end, uh, at the end, they just um, didn't show up. And, and then 
sort of came up with excuses and lies that, oh, the government didn't let them. They were at the airport, which proved not to be true. So they had their doubts and they suddenly got panic attack. Um, you know, I, I have to say it was a backlash and a setback for us because then getting an actress who doesn't know material and it's very difficult. And I think that the film hurt, especially with the second film. Um, you know, I have to admit it was really not a good thing. But, you know, there's certain things that I you cannot control. And now these days, I know for sure that I would never, ever work with anyone that lives in Iran. Hmm. Just because of these experiences? Because, uh, because it makes it impossible for people, you know, that because of my reputation, because of the issues that I have, the controversy about my work, um, you know, it's, it's not good for them. Hmm. They could get in trouble. And you take that into consideration when you think about working with them? Absolutely. I, I mean, a lot of people in my studio even work with me. They don't like to have their picture taken with mm-hmm. me because they don't want, you know, eventually be seen that they're a part of my community. I mean, it's a very, very odd thing. But, um, you know, it's in Iran, the situation has made it where even if you have committed no crime, you could be criminal. And and it's like it doesn't make any sense at all, you know, uh, but um, unfortunately, we're living under dictatorship and very few countries is like that, you mm-hmm. know, where the government even would care about who is making a film and is not or an actress coming to work on a film about Omakosum. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's ridiculous. But I think it's mostly the actors themselves that had anxiety about maybe something would go wrong and then they backed out. Mm. Speaking of your reputation, I know that people around the world are very familiar with your art, but thinking about a large exhibition like the one here, there are certainly people who are going to encounter your work for the first time in this setting where they can kind of see, you know, the whole, not maybe not the whole timeline, but much of it. And I'm, I'm wondering how you made selections about what you wanted to include or emphasize based on that. Well, that goes to the credit of the curator mm-hmm. at Chad. I mean, we had a long conversation we knew this was going to be a monographic exhibition so it would be a beginning middle and the end i <laughs> hope it's not the end um and so and i also we made a decision i highly encourage that i make a new work mm-hmm. that would be premiered here which they really thought it was a good idea um and i like it because um it really feels like a circle that starts with me uh, in the united states looking out toward iran and critiquing it ends with uh, me standing here looking into the American um, culture and critiquing it. And in the middle of the show, slowly I let go of the Iranian narratives and I embraced other cultures like Egypt, Azerbaijan, um, you know, and Morocco, and then eventually comes to America. So there's this um, the kind of absence of nostalgia uh, and, and just this obsession with home. You know, Mm -hmm. and I think in many ways it's a little bit about my personal journey. Uh, Like when I got exhausted of not being able to go back to Iran, I said, fuck it, I'm just not going to go on forever feeling sorry for myself and work on memory or something like that. And and I felt liberated by that decision, and then the world became my canvas. Mm. I recall also reading you say something about how the governments of Iran and the United States have never had so much in common, or I'm paraphrasing, but I'm wondering if that's 
also playing into your shifting perspective on what it means to live here? Yes, I never ever imagined that I would say something like that Mm -hmm. um, because I think one of the things that I cherished about being in this country is its democracy and its land of immigrants, land of dreams. Um, And for that to sort of be compromised and transformed potentially into a very racist um, and a white society um, and purifying itself of immigrant, which in essence is a contradiction to the very formation of this culture. And also, I felt that it became an ideological government where it never was like that. I feel like comes with Trump, a whole ideology that I find very problematic, extremely dangerous, and then it's the same I felt about the Iranian government, that there's a very ideological uh, government that is fanatic, it's religious, and religion and state blend together, which is absolutely wrong. And it's a dictatorship, and, and they have controlled every aspect of people's lives in private and public domain. And soon you probably have to watch out in this country, whether you have to be censored, certain things become a problem. And um, I just really feel like at the rate that we're going, the changes that are happening, it's frightening. Mm-hmm. And, and the most important is the treatment of immigrants, the lack of human rights issues. I mean, Mexicans crossing the border, what we are seeing in those camps. It is just not America that I know of. Um, so it's very disturbing. And I feel like as those who are born in this country have to be worried. Us as immigrants who've been naturalized citizens also have to worry. We all have to protect what is the greatest thing about this country. Mm. You know, it's democracy. And this is why it doesn't exist anywhere else, you know. And so I feel that is one of the reasons I want to make more work that sort of communicates both the good and bad values in this country. You know, mm-hmm. because I see they it co- they coexist. Um, because I love this country, you know, and I care about it. So you think there is a real role for the artist in preventing the worst that could happen? Well, look, I I feel that I don't want to overstate it. I feel like the artists have a major role in terms of inspiring people, mobilizing people, you know, making people think, uh, rethink about issues uh, without being didactic, without being polemic, without saying what is right and what is wrong. And that's exactly what's difficult to make political artwork that is not biased. And in the land of dreams, that's exactly what I try to do, is to show the vulnerability of the people and how we're all under same degree of tyranny and corruption uh, and, and that we're very vulnerable in, in this planet. But I didn't want to point out exactly, you know, who is the evil and who is the... And I think that um, to make work that sort of reflects on the political situation without being a propaganda is extremely delicate and difficult, but it's important. Mm. Are there rules you have for yourself and how to walk that line? Or how do you know you're, you are staying on the side of um, more lyrical interpretation or inspiration rather than propaganda? The way I do it is I make very personal work. I, I don't make just, I don't just choose a subject and say, oh, that's a hot political subject. I'm going to make a work about it. I make work that relates and 
directly to my own personal life that I have felt the pain. You know, you can't fake pain. You can't fake the anxiety of being an immigrant, for example, or, or, or political injustice or anxiety of different kinds. So I think what my methodology is make the work as personal as possible, but not autobiographical, because mm. that doesn't interest me. And when you're personal, people believe you. Mm. Because there's a lot of transparency, there's a lot of emotion. And, and I think that's my approach. I don't know how other artists do it. Mm. Well, now I have a biographical question for you. <laughs> um, a theme that comes up in a lot of your work is this is being separated from your family or the sense of separation. And I'm curious about the people who are maybe more physically close to you or geographically close to you who fill that support role of family now at this point in your life? Maybe you don't know, but I work with a tribe of people. <laughs> I'm very tribal. I have created, ever since Turbulent, my first video, uh, where I met my future husband and the community that made that film, uh, we are in my studio, a group of like 15 people or more, where we literally work together day after day uh, on both photographic work and film-based work and mostly Iranian. And um, we are just like a big family and we deeply care for each other. We're extremely close, but also artistically very close. Mm. And at this moment, as I speak to you, I'm in LA, we rented the Airbnb. <laughs> there are eight of us staying in the same house. <laughs> and then there are 20 of us going to my brother's home. So we are just like very blessed by this idea of creating a sense of home and a family on the outside of our own country. But I think what really connects us not is not just being Iranian, but is art. Right, a, a deeper a deeper value. A deeper and deeper art that it doesn't just resonate among Iranian people, but also the Westerners, the mm -hmm. Americans. And that's very important to me because again, I really do consider myself half American, half Iranian. You know, and I don't consider myself pure Iranian. And the people who work with me understand that. Some of them are far more Iranian than I am, but we do have this understanding that our audience are very international and very diverse. Mm -hmm. I think we should just maybe leave it there. Do you, am I missing any questions? Well, I think we have to ask about favorite snacks. We're seeing her. Oh, <laughs> we, are, we have a silly sort of question we ask most of our guests, which is, um, what is your favorite snack? Oh, God. <laughs> Oh my God, I'm so embarrassed to admit my favorite snacks because they're so banal. But but usually people could say exotic things. But I like like corn chips and I like <laughs> I like cookies and I like all these bad things and apples. I like uh, apples. Is that what you meant? Sure. Of food. Yeah. 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 I, I usually um, I eat breakfast. The rest of the day I just snack. <laughs> I love it. And, and and I have one more little little question that's maybe a little more serious. Yeah. What is the last? Um, you know, work of art, movie, book, painting that, that really moved you that you couldn't stop thinking about? There are so many things. Um, I have to say very often more are films that move mm. me um, than art, although it has happened quite a lot recently. One of the films I love the most is Roma. Mm. You know, it's a film that was a year ago, but I thought it was a beautifully balanced film, visually, um, narratively, uh, it was simple, minimal, 
uh, and I, I loved it. I loved it. I know it was very commercially successful, but it really touched me. It was absolutely beautifully shot. Uh, and that's kind of my idea of films that are meaningful and yet um, are very beautiful, you know, and the craftsmanship, mm-hmm. you know, it sort of defines my vision as an artist. I've also been a great admirer of certain artists, like I have, I'm not a painter, but recently I came across an exhibition with of Marlene Dumas, mm-hmm. who's a painter, and it just was like a knife into my stomach. I was just blown away by his, like, you know, primal impact. Um, so I like work that are very emotional. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I feel like that goes back to what you were saying about perhaps personal, but not necessarily biographical. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That you don't really... I'd, cannot identify why it moved you mm-hmm. you know like sometimes you're just listening to music and that music takes you somewhere else like it transcends it transplants you mm-hmm. and you say that is just amazing <laughs> that that music just changed me completely moment to moment and you say wow art really can do that to you thank god it's like a spiritual <laughs> experience and and that is something i look for mm. i look to be moved Thank you. Thank you so much for this very smart question. No. Oh. <laughs> ah, we love a visual artist. So good. We do. And like the real challenge of having a visual artist on a podcast is like there's a lot of you do have to expend some time maybe like talking about what the work looks like in order to like contextualize for people who might not be familiar with why it's so amazing. So thanks for your patience with my probably clunky descriptions of different things she's got going on and um i don't know come visit me in la and we'll go can't wait all right i'll see you on the internet i'll see you at the museum (laughs) bye bye (laughs) you can find us many places on the internet callyourgirlfriend.com apple podcast spotify stitcher we're on all your favorite platforms subscribe rate review you know the drill you can call us back you can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943 that's 714-681-cygf you can email us callyrgf at gmail.com our theme song is by robin original music composed by carolyn pennypacker riggs our logos are by kenesha sneed we're on instagram and twitter at callyrgf our associate producer is jordan bailey and this podcast is produced by gina delvac Thank you.